putting clients first is uh, is a key to excellence. Doing your best every day, never a half measure, never phoning it in. Even if you have uh, a limited budget for a particular case, but you need to spend more time in order to do the right job, you do the right job. That's a no-brainer. Um, and continuously learning and staying current is uh, is really central to uh, to success. That was Lonnie Rosen, and I'm Sean Robichaud. Welcome to another episode of Above Council. I'm joined again with my co-host, Jacob Roth, where we talk to Lonnie about health law and what that practice entails. This is a really interesting episode, and I'm sure you will enjoy it. Whether you're interested in health law or not, there's a lot to be learned from Lonnie Rosen. I'm here with Lonnie Rosen. Uh, welcome back to Of Council. And Lonnie, uh, I have a question for you because you have served as an adjudicator in the past and you're a very effective advocate. And I'm curious if you could answer the question, I guess, in, from both perspectives. What is it that makes your advocacy effective? So my approach to advocacy informed by having worked as an adjudicator and also uh, working with decision makers is always to show them the way out. I always focus on that. The, uh, the problem that the adjudicator is facing, the issue that they're dealing with, they are counting on us as counsel to show them the way to the solution. And that's really what drives all of my, uh, my approach to advocacy. It also drives uh, a lot of my interactions with clients. Um, all of our clients are in difficult situations, and our role is to show them the way and then lead them through it or support them in getting out of that uh, difficult situation. There is a really interesting book that I read recently. Um, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna find it in a moment, but it talks a lot about um, exactly what you're referring to: um, psychology of making things easy. And one of the best analogies that he gave uh, in this book, the author, was there was a difficulty with finding a way to allow the consumers to buy the product. And in this case, it was couches. So people would go in and they, they do these elaborate um, customizations of couches. And they would spend hours making the perfect couch the way they wanted it. And they would get to the checkout point and they couldn't figure out why anyone would spend hours making these couches and then not purchase them. And what they figured out ultimately is the problem wasn't the couch or the price of the couch. It was, okay, I'm about to buy this couch. How do I get rid of my old couch? And so what this company did was they picked up your couch. They made this whole initiative and all of a sudden the couches start flying out the door. And it sounds a lot like what you're talking about is essentially you're making the couch easy for the adjudicator. Well, I'm not so sure if, uh, if it's the same as selling couches, but, uh, <laughs> no. but absolutely. Uh, we want to make things easy for the adjudicator. We want to help the adjudicator make the solution or make the decision that is going to be best for our client in the e getting there the most, uh, the easiest way possible. So what does that look like in advocacy when you're, uh, when you had sat as an adjudicator in the past, and I'm sure it forms your advocacy now. What does that look like when you hand up a brief or when you stand up to make submissions? When do you know or have that feeling that this is going to be easy for them to decide because of your work? 
Hmm. That's a great question. I think that um, it's about, uh, it's not so much, everything you do uh, supports that, the materials, the um, uh, accessibility, um, but it's simplifying. It's making the argument as uh, as clear and simple as possible, not to in any way to dumb it down, but in a way that, uh, that you can explain it to someone and have a good discussion. Uh, that's really the key is to prepare enough to have a discussion about your case without necessarily referring to your notes. Always you're going to refer to your notes for citations and whatnot. But if you can't have a good discussion explaining why the the position you're advocating is the right one, then you don't know your case well enough. And if you do, then you'll welcome questions from the bench or from the adjudicator, and you'll welcome the opportunity to explain why you're, what you're proposing is the right outcome. I... I want to return to advocacy because a lot of the listeners who listen to this podcast are uh, really into that. I mean, they're advocates themselves. They're people who are often going to law school and trying to figure out how to become advocates. Uh, but before we do, um, tell us what it is to practice in, in um, health and regulatory law because you're a certified specialist in this area. And, and for me... Um, I didn't even know that this area of law existed until you and I met. And now that we have and we've talked over the years, um, it's, it's quite fascinating how broad this area of law is. So what is it in a very practical sense that you do on a day-to-day? Well, I think you've hit it on the head there in that um, for most uh, most practitioners, health law is something that's out there, uh, regulatory law, sort of a niche area um, that they don't deal with too often. But once you uh, look into health and regulatory law and you look at the kind of work that people do within health and regulatory law, it's incredibly broad. There are so many different things. My practice alone really has uh, about six, six distinct areas. For me, about half of my practice is related to professional regulation. Um, And of that, about half of it is representing professionals, regulated professionals. Um, And um, uh, so those would be in proceedings like responding to complaints representing them in discipline committee proceedings, representing them in proceedings before the fitness to practice committee, where the issue is whether they are incapacitated in that they suffer from uh, a condition that makes it uh, in the public interest that a practice be restricted or they not be allowed to practice because of a health condition, for example, a a mental illness or an addiction. Um, The uh, responding to or representing professionals in investigations. So all of that is the defense side of uh, health and regulatory law. Then I, uh, the other half of my health and regulatory law work would be representing or rather advising um, regulators, particularly discipline committees. Uh, I serve as, my partner and I both serve as independent legal counsel or ILC to discipline panels. So um, if you know how that works, if, you, uh, if a professional is alleged to have engaged in acts of professional misconduct, they're charged with misconduct, the uh, college uh, or the regulator will prosecute that uh, those allegations. So the uh, pr- the college will have a prosecutor. Um, the registrant may have a lawyer, or they may be self represented. And the discipline committee of a regulated profession of a self regulated profession is comprised of members of that profession and public members, but typically no lawyers and and no judges. As a result they need support and assistance with the legal issues that arise during the hearing. And they have independent legal counsel who gives them that support. So I and my partner serve that uh, in that role. 
and uh, we provide advice, typically on the record, um, so that the uh, participants, the parties to the hearing, can provide comments on our advice. So let me ask you in a very basic sense, because a lot of the people who enjoy this podcast um, like to know from a very accessible point of view. It's not always lawyers. And if if I had someone call me and say, you know, uh, I think that that doctor didn't do a good job. They didn't tell me about these things and the risk, and now I have this complication. Um, a, would they come to you? And B, what happens to that patient? What's the process for that patient? And what's the process for that doctor? So uh, the patient who has a concern, if they come to me, I will refer them to a lawyer who practices in the area of medical malpractice. Um, that, uh, that lawyer is the one who can get compensation for that patient. If the patient, uh, didn't, doesn't have say a claim in tort, um, because they're, you know, they're either told they don't have a case of negligence or they haven't actually suffered harm, but they're upset about the process, then they might make a complaint to the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. Um, and, uh, and although I, um, I represent physicians in that, uh, in those circumstances or other health professionals at their colleges, but in any case, the plain, the person will make a complaint then that starts the complaints process. And uh, it's a process that is run by the inquiries or inquiries, complaints, and reports committee. Every college has a committee. It's a screening committee. And what that committee will do is investigate the concerns. And some investigations are quite informal. The person makes a complaint. The, um, uh, the professional gets a chance to respond, and that might be it. They might provide their records, and then the committee will review that and make a decision, um, which can range from taking no action, which is the best outcome for the professional, referring allegations of misconduct to the discipline committee, which is the worst outcome for the professional, or doing something um, less severe, like ordering, uh, imposing a, a caution, uh, or ordering that they complete a specified continuing education and remediation program. We call that a SCRP. So that's the outcome at the ICRC level, and that can lead to discipline. But I don't represent uh, complainants or patients. As you're talking about this, I, I thought to myself, there's some parallels to be drawn perhaps in uh, what, what we do. And, and uh, just so everyone knows, I'm joined with uh, Jacob Roth, who's an associate lawyer with, uh, with a law firm. And, and he's going to be, not, not Lonnie's law firm, but with Robichaux's. And uh, Jacob's going to be uh, doing these podcasts with us moving forward. He's my, uh, my intellectual crutch here. He's going to be asking the tough questions. So it's easy right now. <laughs> but, but, uh, but anyway, the way I was going off on a bit of a tangent there. But what I was going to say is um, in criminal law, what, what I've come to uh, see is the people who are most likely to file complaints against criminal lawyers are those uh, who have legal aid certificates. And I think part of the reason for that is that even though we may deliver the same service, there's a psychological effect there that people who pay for something as a matter of cognitive dissonance, you then, you, you, it's a matter of self-confirmation, right? It's confirmation bias. I got the right lawyer. I bought the right truck. I purchased the right couch. And, and once you've paid for something, there's a difference from something to say, this is the truck we're assigning you through work, or this is the couch that we have at work or we're giving to you. 
And I wonder, uh, in the health context, and maybe you don't know this, but um, are is Ontario or Canada disproportionate in complaints to other jurisdictions in the world? And maybe with the U.S. it's a bad analogy because it's rather litigious, but I'm curious with our healthcare system, you must see so many complaints coming forward. So um, most of my practice representing professionals is uh, involving other professions than medicine. But I can tell you that uh, there's no question that the uh, number of complaints is very much driven by that um, with, uh, with, you know, um, with dentists, many, uh, many people who have concerns about their dentist um, can address those concerns uh, by, by not paying, for example, or by uh, asking for a refund, something along those lines. There's plenty of t- complaints against dentists, and I represent dentists in those proceedings as well. Um, but no doubt, the fact that, uh, that there's no other way um, for a person to get recourse other than by making a complaint is a big driver of complaints against uh, health professionals, for Isn't sure. Isn't that interesting? That's that's a really good analogy because here you've got in in Ontario, uh, uh, well at least until up until now, but that's going to change soon. Is that uh, that that dentists because it's mostly private may have a different complaint statistic. Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you um, sort of the number of uh, of complaints uh, on a uh, on a sort of per capita basis, um, but um, but there, I can tell you that um, there's uh, thirty different regulated health professions uh, in Ontario, and they all have uh, the same system, and and they and their registrants are all subject to complaints. Huh. Um, so certainly that happens. Sean, well, uh, uh, I guess while I have the microphone, I just want to tell you uh, how much of a pleasure it is to be on this podcast and uh, uh, how much we've missed of counsel over the last couple of years. You're the OG of the uh, <laughs> lawyer podcast world, uh, at least uh, in uh, in Ontario. So it's uh, nice to have you back. My pleasure. I ran out of good coffee at home, so I'm now visiting lawyer's office, and I have to say this coffee is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> What are some of the most common types of misconduct allegations you work with? So, um, representing health professionals, um, the um, the the complaints run the gamut from everything relating to uh, care to um, the treatment, to the um, uh, concerns about payment, uh, concerns about records. It can really be across the board. Now, the cases that go to the discipline committee are, for the most part, involving allegations of sexual abuse or allegations relating to uh, fraud, um, insurance fraud, billing fraud. Um, and, and fraud is, uh, is an overbroad way of saying it, but, uh, but concerns about billing or payment um, um, and, uh, and concerns about sexual abuse are the most common cases that go to discipline, for sure. Has the legalization of medical assistance in dying presented any issues in your practice? Hmm. So... Um, for uh, your listeners, um, made uh, medical assistance in dying became legal um, after the uh, Carter decision of the Supreme Court of Canada in 2016. Um, previous to that, it was a criminal offense, uh, and it remains a criminal offense to uh, assist anyone in uh, in ending their lives. Um, but a um, uh, a plaintiff, uh, or excuse me, a, a person named uh, Gloria Taylor, um, apl- uh, challenged that law on the basis that it uh, it offended her charter right to equality 
um, and to life, liberty, and security because she was suffering from ALS and she would not be able to end her own life like other people would be able to. And therefore, to prohibit a physician from doing so um, uh, on pain of, uh, of criminal allegations um, offended her charter rights. And the Supreme Court of Canada agreed and, um, and gave the government of Canada um, some time, I think it was originally um, six or 12 months, and then it was extended, but time to enact legislation that would permit medical assistance in dying. So that legislation um, was enacted in, uh, in early 2018. Um, and then it was, uh, there were three areas. And so that was only available for someone who had a, uh, a grievous and irremediable condition. So someone um, for whom death was reasonably foreseeable. That restriction was challenged um, in um, in a more recent case called Truchon, and the government did not uh, um, appeal that decision. It was a Quebec uh, Superior Court decision. So as a result, a second track for MAID became available for people whose death was not reasonably foreseeable, but who still suffered from a grievous and irremediable condition. Um, that, uh, so, so in answer to your question, Jacob, a long answer to a short question, um, that caused, uh, you know, for a, a great deal of confusion in terms of, uh, both, uh, MAID providers, physicians and nurse practitioners who were proposing, proposing to provide MAID as well as people who were seeking MAID for, uh, for themselves. Um, there were a couple of areas that remained um, uh, prohibited, and one is the case of someone um, who has only a, um, a mental illness condition as opposed to a physical illness condition, um, and that is a piece uh, that is uh, subject to change shortly. In, in I believe, March, uh, the legislation is going to change to permit someone whose grievous and irremediable condition is a mental condition and not a physical illness. There are a couple of other areas uh, that remain um up for debate, and one is the case of mature minors, and the other is the case of advanced directives. Um, and uh, currently, uh, made is not available in advance. So someone, um, someone who loses capacity, um, but prior to losing capacity, uh, created an advanced directive so that they would uh, be able to undergo made at a certain point. That's not valid right now. Um, that perhaps is where the law will go. Right now, someone has to remain capable um, until they uh, receive made. This this raises some really interesting questions, and it's it. I'm really glad you asked that question, Jacob, because I've seen lately, just in the past week or so, uh, U.S. news have really focused on this, particularly uh, Fox News talking about uh, essentially mental people with mental illnesses can now, you know, be essentially killed off is how they're, they're framing it, and I'm sure there's a lot of misinformation there, and. Um, and I, I, I'd really appreciate, by the way, the, uh, I think that'd be a great name for a podcast, a long answer to a short question. <laughs> I love that. Uh, but, but, but back to the misinformation, um, the way it's often characterized and, and heard, you know, if you talk to people uh, just about su assisted suicide, especially when it gets contentious, is that people can just tell their doctor that, okay, I've had enough, sign me up. And, do you have, um, in, in your work, do you have an appreciation of how difficult or easy that is? And do you see some of the problems with the misinformation that might be going out there? So there are a number of safeguards built into the legislation, and um, uh, I can review, review those with you. Um, but, uh, but suffice it to say that um, a provider of MAID 
will uh, is at risk of criminal charges if they don't comply with the legislation. So if uh, if a person does not meet the criteria for MAID and they're found by two different assessors to meet that criteria, then they're not going to be able to access MAID. Much of the media attention lately has been around um, the the fact that uh, that marginalized people um, who are not uh, able, who don't have adequate housing, don't have adequate support, um, are um, are able to access MAID. And I think that that, uh, I, I worry that that's conflating two different things. So uh, previously MAID was not available to anyone. And then after the Supreme Court of Canada recognized that it was a violation of charter rights for someone uh, not to be able to access MAID um, if they were um, suffering from a grievous and irremediable condition, um, then that became available to them. The fact that um, uh, support is not currently provided at uh, an adequate level to many in our community is a separate issue. And the um, availability of MAID doesn't change the, uh, the fact that people are living without adequate support. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a, that is a, it's complicated. Is this where the discussions at parties for you often go into assistance? <laughs> it seems like we've, we've got into this and this is a really interesting discussion. I'm sure we could do a whole podcast on this. But um, there's just so much to explore. Is, is this a common thing that comes up with you? At uh, Well, the great thing about practicing in health and regulatory law is it touches everybody. So um, there's uh, um, everyone uh, that you interact with is going to have some interaction with the healthcare system. Um, and, um, and that's what makes it uh, such an interesting area. I know Jacob's got a question, but I just on that point, before we move to it, um, we, you know, we as lawyers, when we practice in our own little areas, uh, we all have specific sort of insider advice that we give our friends and family because we kind of know how the baseball inside baseball is played. So, you know, as a criminal lawyer, I might tell friends or family to be particularly cautious about X, Y, and Z. For example, what I always say to everyone is if you're going out, either drink or don't don't drink. There's no in between. I'm going to have one or two and then drive. That's one piece of advice. A simple piece of advice. It, knowing what you do about health and medicine, is there some common advice that you might give loved ones or family about doctor selection or anything like that? I don't know that I give advice uh, about uh, about doctor selection. It's it's certainly um, a privilege and responsibility to know the inner workings of the mental health system, to know how uh, it works when someone is discharged from hospital and uh, and seeking long term care. So um, as as I mentioned, everybody goes through those types of things with their friends and family, and uh, it's nice to be able to explain it and help them navigate that system. I'd imagine that. Working in health law, you regularly encounter bioethical issues. Are there any issues that the public may not know about, but are, are actually pretty significant and impact your practice? So, I mean, I'm certainly not a bioethicist. Um, the, uh, I guess the closest thing that I get to bioethics is dealing with issues of consent and capacity. Um, so, um, so one of the issues there is that in Ontario, there is no age of consent to treatment. Um, so many people don't appreciate that. Young people can be capable of consenting to their own health care. Um, and, um, and they can also have, uh, um, have uh, agency and have a, a decision over who can 
access uh, and see their health records, including their own parents. So the uh, the test for capacity, someone is capable if they are able to understand the information relevant to a treatment decision. That means they can process and retain the information. Um, so they're not like, um, you know, they don't have significant cognitive impairment that prevents them from being able to understand. So that's part one. Part two is they have to be able to appreciate the reasonably foreseeable consequences of the decision. Um, so that relates to having insight, being able to apply the information to themselves. So as long as someone is able to understand the information and uh, appreciate the consequences of their decision, they can make their own decision. And if it's a decision that they've made on their own for healthcare, then they um, have say over who can access their personal health information. Um, so that's something that uh, that is a challenge um, that uh, that uh, sort of I deal with that. One of the things that um, the uh, as far as things that people don't know about the health and regulatory system, um, I'll tell you this. I think the the members of the public rarely appreciate that regulators have the mandate of protecting the public and they are not the advocates for or representatives of the members of the profession. So many people on the street think that the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario looks out for the doctors, but in fact, the college's mandate is to protect the public. Uh, something that uh, many health professions and other regulated professionals don't appreciate. Um, sometimes they don't appreciate the role of the regulator and they say, I don't know why I'm still a member of this college. This college doesn't help me out at all. And I say, well, that's not their role. Um, but, uh, but then those who do appreciate the role of the college often don't appreciate the uh, extent of the accountability that the colleges face. So all regulators are under incredible scrutiny um, and they're accountable for uh, for all of the work that they do. Um, and uh, and many regulated profession, professionals don't appreciate the extent to which the real people working in the colleges uh, strive to, to meet their mandate of protecting the public, but also to do so fairly and to get it right. Um, so that's, that's another area that people uh, don't always know about as you were talking about capacity for for younger people to make decisions and having that right uh, one thing I've noticed with you know between my wife and I aging parents and I've I've come to realize how important and lacking in many ways patient advocacy can be and uh, fortunately um, you know in our context we're um, educated and we can uh, often talk on behalf of our parents about getting the treatment they need. But I imagine there's a lot of uh, elderly people who don't have that uh, privilege. And what rights uh, or what systems are in place to make sure that older people get the care that they may not even be asking for or don't know they're entitled to? Yeah, so navigating the healthcare system is unfortunately a challenge for everybody, uh, older people, younger people across the board. Um, and uh, healthcare is under such resource constraints um, that uh, advocacy alone is often not going to be the difference. Um, but uh, but you know there are um, there's the patient ombudsman, there's um, there's uh, uh, um, 
patient relations uh, in uh, in most uh, healthcare institutions. Um, and um, but people really have to uh, do their best to advocate for themselves. They also you may not appreciate, but uh, but healthcare providers also have an ethical duty. Of course, they have a fiduciary duty uh, to uh, to do the best uh, for their patients. But also, um, advocacy is uh, is an ethical principle for uh, for health professionals. So uh, assisting uh, patients to navigate the system is an obligation. So why do you do this, Lonnie? Why, what drives you? Why 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 have the passion? Why do you have the passion you do in this area of law? So this is really fun, Sean. Um, <laughs> that's uh, that's why I do it. I think that um, you know the work that we do is uh, is really rewarding. It's a real privilege to uh, to help people through difficult situations. Um, it's fun. It's challenging um, because uh, it's never routine. It's never the same case twice. Um, it's uh, I think it's somewhat important and uh, and it's exciting. Yeah, there's no doubt it's it's important and the the magnitude of what you deal with i mean even just walking into a hospital and seeing people running around and all the relations that are going on there and um how many levels of practitioners are there and they're all their essential roles it's hard for me to even comprehend that let alone all the regulations that intertwine that and the colleges because it's not just one medical college right sure um so every profession has its own regulator, um, every regulated profession. And um, so uh, when you're talking about in the hospital context, what you have is, uh, of course, physicians who are regulated by the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. You have nurses who are regulated by the College of Nurses. You have uh, physiotherapists and respiratory therapists and speech pathologists, um, um, all of whom have their own regulator. You also have the hospital system. So uh, within hospitals, a lot of people don't appreciate this, physicians are, for the most part, not employed by hospitals. They might be employees if they're in an administrative capacity, um, sort of as a department uh, chief or something along those lines, uh, or in hospital administration. But for the most part, physicians have privileges at hospitals. Oh. And that's another area of our work, um, where uh, a physician gets a complaint within the hospital, um, then um, then the hospital may seek to, uh, to suspend or restrict or even revoke the physician's privileges. Um, um, so that's uh, that's another uh, area that we uh, that we assist in, and those are often very contentious proceedings. Um, one of the um, I guess one of the areas of hospital privileges that is I think most contentious is the concept of disruptive physician behavior. Um, so that dates back to um, uh, an inquest uh, a number of years ago, where a physician, uh, an anesthesiologist, uh, unfortunately um, uh, killed a nurse uh, in the hospital. So that resulted in an inquest uh, that called the Dupont Daniel inquest, and um, and following that inquest. There were uh, a number of recommendations, um, one of which was that um, the public hospitals have uh, more tools to deal with disruptive physician behavior. The concept being that if a physician was disruptive um, such that it was uh, uh, difficult to work with that physician, then that would actually give rise to a risk uh, for patient care. Um, if somebody would be afraid, for example, to, um, to share a test result with a physician or to come to a physician with a problem, then that can have a real impact on patient care. Um, unfortunately, what uh, that resulted in 
is um, there's a guidebook for managing disruptive physician behavior, and that recommends a progressive approach, and that's fair enough. Um, but where it gets challenging for physicians is if their behavior is identified as disruptive, then the physician themselves are identified as a disruptive physician, and it uh, it seems that uh, it's a risk to that physician that all of their behavior can be viewed through that lens. Um, so that can result in um, in the if the physician is identified as disruptive, that can lead to the suspension or revocation of their hospital privileges, um, and then that uh, any impact on their hospital privileges will also lead to a college investigation, um, or man, rather a mandatory report to the college. So that will be investigated. So uh, when we represent physicians, it's really important to address uh, even small issues to ensure that uh, that they are not labeled as a disruptive physician, or if they are, that is addressed through um, uh, developing insight, through coursework, through uh, things along those lines, in order to ensure that uh, that they remain um, uh, privileged and um, and don't have uh, their privileges impacted. So is that a large bulk of your work where you'll be advising doctors along those lines as these, these complaints start to come in that you explain how this might progress and how to minimize that? And well, yeah, with all health professionals. So I started to tell you about my work, and I right. told you about half of it was um, – was regulatory law, and of that, half of it was defending health professionals, all different health professionals, not physicians so much, um, but uh, but all different professionals, and some physicians certainly. Um, the um, uh, so that's part of it. We but there's also lots of other areas of uh, of my health law practice that's not even in regulatory law. Uh, hospital privileges being one of them. Another area is uh, is just giving opinions and advice. So um, where we have. Um, uh, clients who are healthcare providers, um, if they have concerns about the, a client's capacity to consent to treatment, or there's a fight about records, I get this a lot in the area of children's mental health, where um, parents want, in the midst of a custody dispute, want access to a child's records. Oh, and isn't that interesting? So yeah. then you get, then you're going to have to be working with other lawyers as well. Sure. So that's another area that we uh, that we do. Um, we uh, we work with other lawyers in different proceedings. So um, one of them is um, in the area of family law. If there's a dispute over records, uh, often we we represent the healthcare provider who are the subject of orders for uh, for or requests for records. Uh, but we also advise uh, our colleagues in in family law about that and about those rights and obligations. Um, in, um, you know, I'll, I'll just finish, uh, uh, talking about the other lawyers I sure. work with and then I'll finish the other areas of, of practice. Cause it is a bit of, again, a long answer to a short question. Yeah, that's right. That's the, 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 name, name. the, the, the of counsel 2.0 yeah. is the new title. <laughs> so, uh, so I mean, one of my favorite things actually is working with other lawyers. So, uh, you and I of course had, uh, at least one, maybe two cases together where your client was, uh, was charged criminally. Uh, but that client was also a regulated health professional. Right. So there are obligations to report to the college um, in the case of uh, criminal charges um, and of course um, that would trigger an investigation so it's uh, it's really I think very useful and we certainly had uh, um, a good uh, um, a good experience with uh, with you doing the criminal piece um, and I was able to support that by advising the crown and the pretrial judge of the regulatory consequences that 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 health professional was going to face regardless of anything in the criminal world um, and that you were able to get a uh, a good outcome for uh, for a client in um, in at least one case that I can think of so that and then uh, and then the regulatory proceedings flow from that 
Um, so then that's, uh, that's how I would help the client. Uh, another area is, uh, lawyers who, uh, I don't do anything in the area of medical malpractice, but I might advise them about, uh, the limitations on use of, uh, proceedings under the regulated health professions act, because there's a restriction, uh, on the, um, the use that can be made of, uh, information and, and documents from those proceedings in civil litigation. It's not admissible as evidence. So that's, that's the work that we do with other lawyers. Um, just wrapping up my, uh, my health law practice, um, advising uh, healthcare providers um, on um, consent and capacity and made. Um, healthcare business is, uh, is a huge area and uh, lots of people are doing lots of really innovative and uh, exciting things, um, but they have regulatory restrictions. So if uh, physicians want to offer healthcare on a private basis, on a per payment, uh, payment basis, um, then we give advice around that. If businesses want to engage health professionals, that could give rise to a conflict of interest. So we give opinions uh, and advice around those relationships. Um, Another area that we do is uh, is represent parties in disputes. So whether it's actual civil litigation or just demands for payment, if there's a dispute within a, uh, a health organization, a dispute among physicians, for example, or if a physician is leaving a clinic and has a fight with the, um, whether they're uh, owned by a regulated health professional or just a, a business, uh, in which case they wouldn't have the same obligations um, that, uh, that health professionals have, that gives rise to disputes, disputes over records, disputes over obligations. So we uh, represent uh, parties in those disputes. Um, some of the other areas I practice in is uh, uh, one of them is privacy law. So helping uh, healthcare organizations manage uh, privacy breaches, develop policies, respond to complaints to the Information and Privacy Commissioner. And we also uh, help um, with, uh, with non-health privacy, so uh, personal information, uh, which is uh, governed by the Personal Information Protection of Elect and Electronic Documents Act, or PEPIDA. Um, we help um, uh, uh, insurance companies and, uh, and other providers who have records of personal information and, um, and get complaints. Uh, and request for access to those records. So right. that, that sort of, and then rounding out my health law practice is uh, a little bit of mental health law. So um, as you mentioned, I used to sit on the consent and capacity board. My term expired. Um, so um, um, I, uh, I still represent, I don't represent so much, but um, I advise families um, about uh, nav navigating the mental health system, particularly if they have a, a child who's um, uh, detained in hospital involuntarily, or there's a concern about consent to, to treatment, uh, or they refuse treatment advising them about the law in those areas uh that sort of rounds out my health law practice wow that is a broad <laughs> broad area of of practice i'm all, my mind's already hurting listening to how much you you get into that's great i love the uh the the, the idea of dr house it, it makes good tv but it doesn't sound like he sticks around a hospital very long <laughs> what is the consent and capacity board so the Consent Capacity Board is a tribunal that adjudicates uh, challenges around involuntary status or capacity or, or substitute decision-making. So this is um, a board uh, or a tribunal established by uh, Legislature of Ontario. Um, and, um, and if someone is detained in hospital um, on a certificate of involuntary status, for example, um, then they may challenge that and they may ask this board uh, to review whether the criteria for involuntary status continue to be met. Um, so the, uh, that board would, uh, would convene a, a panel consisting of a lawyer, 
a psychiatrist and a public member, and that panel's job would be to hear evidence to determine whether the criteria for involuntary status have been met. Similarly, a doctor might find a patient to be incapable of consenting to treatment. I mentioned earlier the test for capacity. Um, so a, um, a doctor might find that someone is not able to understand the information because they can't process and retain the information. Or they're not able, this is a more common case, they're not able to appreciate the consequences of a treatment decision. Um, so they find them incapable, and that means that someone else, their substitute decision maker, will make decisions for them. But if that person disagrees with the decision, they might apply to the Consent and Capacity Board for a review. View, and then the board would review whether the, uh, the doctor has established that uh, through evidence that is clear, cogent, and convincing on a balance of probabilities that the person is indeed incapable of consenting to treatment. So, um, so I, uh, I sat for 10 years on that board, and that was a really interesting experience. Wow, 10 years. Uh, and, and did you notice a trend upwards in, in how busy it was getting as the population aged because it's you know i've always thought of the consent and capacity board more of an issue of involuntary detention um or not detention but hospitalization i should say but now it seems you know now that you've, you've expanded on that i can appreciate how this would affect a lot of medical treatments yes um i don't know uh in terms of numbers how much that impact uh, that uh, the um, expanded medical treatments uh, or aging population has resulted. But I do know that year over year, the number of applications heard by the board has increased uh, dramatically hmm. throughout the, the 10 years that I was a member of the board. So you were an adjudicator on the consent and capacity board, which makes me wonder uh, whether there were things you wished most lawyers did but didn't do that would have made your life much easier as an adjudicator. And, and by the way, I found the name of that book I was talking about. It's called The Human Element, Overcoming the Resistance That Awaits New Ideas by Lauren Nungren and David uh, Schornthal. And it's an excellent book, one of the best ones I've listened to in the past couple of years. And it talks about the how so much of what we do is just a question of lack of friction. You know, when we when we sign up for something, we're very likely to stay with that just because it's such a pain to unsubscribe and things like that. So to Jacob's question, I suppose that some of that might relate to this principle. Yeah. So um, so as an adjudicator on the consent and capacity board, um, I um, I obviously heard a lot of uh, a lot of cases and um, the onus. Uh, it's important to remember is on the physician. If the physician is uh, um, has found someone to be incapable, the patient doesn't have to prove anything. The physician has to prove they're incapable. The physician has to prove that the criteria for involuntary status have been met. Um, there's. Um, uh, I won't get into the, the details of the Mental Health Act for the criteria, um, but, um, you know, oftentimes the, uh, the, the patient was represented by counsel, and typically the physician wasn't. Um, the uh, physicians, um, their, um, I guess their ability to represent themselves at the board, there was a quite a dramatic range, a significant range. Um, so in terms of uh, the frustrations at the board, the real frustrations were where the, uh, the physician didn't turn their mind to the test for capacity and didn't present the evidence to address that. Um, the, the, um, the consent and capacity board cases that were most likely to get overturned on appeal were those where the board applied a best interest 
test instead of uh, looking specifically at the criteria. So that's where the, uh, the boards would get into trouble. And, um, and that's what frustrated me is when the, um, the parties didn't address the evidence relating to the tests and rather spoke about best interests. Um, I've heard over the years that in law school, um, some, some of the podcast episodes have been played and have motivated people to get into various practices. And I suspect you're going to find a lot of people wanting to get into health law, health and regulatory law after this podcast. You may have, I may have overwhelmed you with phone calls, so I'm sorry about that if that happens. But um, what kind of person would this be suitable for? What, what kind of person do you think would thrive in health and regulatory law? So, I mean, I, I don't know that it's that different from, from other practice areas. Um, you, um, uh, but uh, to, to succeed in, uh, in, in our area, you have to be creative. You have to be able to find creative solutions um, to, uh, to find a, a path to, uh, to victory, whatever that looks like in the case. Um, and uh, that requires creativity. You have to be hardworking and patient because you're going to have to go through a lot of records and a lot of materials and a lot of options in order to, uh, to give advice and to develop an argument. Um, you have to be resilient. There's a lot of setbacks uh, in this area, like in every area of law, um, and you can't uh, let that uh, defeat you. You'd have to be flexible and be able to pivot, uh, especially as the landscape changes um, as, uh, as cases proceed. And, um, and you have to be a people person. This, uh, this area of law is all about people. And you have to be able to connect with people to understand what is uh, motivating them, what is their fear, what is their concern, and, uh, and what a victory looks like to them. Because for many people, it's going to look different um, than, uh, than you might expect. I noticed uh, the tissues throughout this uh, boardroom. And I wonder, now that you say that, whether that's because of the human element. I know, you know, Jacob and I in criminal law, we see pretty raw emotions uh, in what we do. And I suspect with people's health and death and everything that comes with a lot of these uh, things that you do, uh, you must have to uh, have a bit of thick skin. You know what, Sean, it's um, the, uh, the emotional element um, uh, per permeates um, and uh, it's, uh, it's across all areas of, uh, of certainly of health and regulatory law. So not just cases of life and life and death, but um, where a uh, where a regulated professional is uh, alleged to have um, uh, engaged in misconduct, or even is the subject of a complaint, that can be incredibly hurtful, and um, and the professional will feel uh, scared and hurt, and uh, and you know, and there's a lot of emotion there. Um, when there's disputes within practices, you might have someone who's built up a practice, and then to find themselves being forced out or no longer in a position of power within their own practice that's incredibly emotional um, the um, the the concern and the emotion really applies in every practice area I think it's amazing that despite the advances of, of medical science it really is just a, a very human process on so many levels isn't it indeed yeah do you become desensitized to it over time I don't think so um, I think that um, that you uh, you have your client or you have your uh, your process and um, and every case is different so every 
individual who is, uh, you know, has a, a bad outcome. And don't forget, you know, in, in healthcare, we have many cases where people just have bad outcomes through no fault of anyone's. So it's, uh, it's always a challenge. You, uh, if you're representing a health professional, um, and someone has had a bad outcome and that has resulted in an impact on their ability to work and their, uh, and their relationships and things like that, you know, you have to recognize that. And, um, and, you know, um, so defending the health professional, um, has to be done in such a way that, uh, that recognizes and empathizes with the, uh, with the concern that the, the, the other person is facing. Um, so, so no, I don't think you get desensitized to it at all. And I think that you have to recognize it, um, embrace it is perhaps too strong of a word, but you do have to, uh, um, deal with that, um, and deal with the emotion at every stage, because that's going to be a big factor in the decision and the outcome. Well, I asked you, um, what kind of person would make a good health lawyer? And, and certainly that personality is part of it. But what does one actually have to do? What did you do to start your business? And, and what are some of the things that made you successful? And perhaps some of the things that you're most proud of uh, that you've achieved in, in starting your firm and, and practicing in this area? Well, thanks for asking that, Sean. I, um, I had a very interesting route into health law. Um, I, um, when I was, uh, uh, at, uh, Osgoode Hall Law School, I, um, I applied to, uh, all of the firms, I think, uh, for my, uh, for my first summer job and, uh, was fortunate to get hired at, uh, what is now called Macmillan. Um, so I was there as a summer student and then an articling student. Um, and then I was hired back. Now the economy was in very bad shape while I was articling. Um, and I thought, well, if I didn't get a job at that firm, I don't know when I would get a job. So I, uh, applied, uh, for a job. Job. I asked them to hire me back. Um, my first choice was advocacy and litigation, and I gave as a second choice securities law. Now, I was hired into securities law. I'm not at all sorry for that experience. Um, I met my wife uh, at that firm, so uh, certainly that was a very important uh, step for me and some of my closest friends I met at that firm as well. But after practicing securities law for a year, I knew that it wasn't for me, and I knew I wanted to be on my feet. So I started meeting with people who were doing advocacy work. One of the people I met with had a health law firm and invited me to join that firm. Um, so I was very fortunate to start health law. Um, while I was in law school, I thought I was going to be a criminal lawyer and I actually did the criminal oh, really? intensive uh, program at Osgoode Hall. Yeah. Um, and I interviewed with all the criminal shops and I actually got the closest thing to a job offer from my top choice uh, that the, uh, the, uh, after the second interview at the, uh, one of the best criminal firms, uh, the, uh, the senior lawyer said, if we were to make you an offer, would you take some time to think about it? And being the conscientious uh, young man I was and pretty dumb, <laughs> I said, absolutely. I would take some time and I would really think about it. And that was actually uh, the wrong answer. The right answer was, <laughs> I don't need time to think about it. That's my job. But I think deep down, I maybe wasn't ready. I wasn't committed enough to do criminal law. And as you know, Sean, uh, to practice in criminal law, you've got to be all in. And I had uh, perhaps uh, I wasn't 100% all in. So I uh, said I would think about it. I was not offered the job and um, and I returned to Macmillan Bench as it then was was hired back in securities law then I wanted to be an advocate I met with some people I joined a health law firm 
And very fortunately for me, uh, the um, the other junior lawyer at the firm at that time was Elise Sunshine. Um, so we grew up together practicing health law together. We uh, From that small firm, we merged into Gardner Roberts. We were the health law department of Gardner Roberts for a number of years. And then it was always my dream to have our own firm. And uh, one day my wife said to me, when are you going to start your law firm? Um, I said, uh, within the next two years. She said, well, you said that two years ago. When are you going to make it happen? And I said, well, when Elise was ready. And shortly thereafter, Elise was ready and we launched our firm. So that was 11 years ago. We just celebrated our 10th anniversary uh, because the uh, party was uh, last year was no year for a party. So we had a nice party for our 10th anniversary with uh, lots of uh, colleagues and clients and friends and family all there. And, um, and that's, uh, so when you asked about some of the things I'm proud of, uh, that's definitely it. Um, the, I have to say, I, one thing I really admired that you and Elise had did with your law firm, uh, have done with your law firm. And maybe this is a question of marketing because I'm sure health law existed prior to you guys, but you were the only firm that were so specialized, at least in the way you presented yourself to say we're health and regulatory lawyers. And since then, I've I've realized how important specialization is, not just as a matter of effectiveness, but also as a matter of marketing. Because you, uh, your firm, was the only one I could think of, and that's how a lot of our connections came to be. When health matters came up, what else? Who else is out there? I don't know. These guys seem great, and you were, of course. But that 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 hyper specialization, especially in Toronto, I think is a really powerful tool. Um, I'm curious if you agree with that, whether it was intentional, but I'm also curious, um, what are some of the other things that you would attribute to your firm's success over the years and what, you know, advice you might give to a young Lonnie Rosen who's starting a, a, a law firm as a business? So, um, the, uh, I guess the, the number one thing is, uh, is our team. Um, so I'm very, very proud of, uh, of the team that Elise and I have, uh, have put together. And, uh, I think that is definitely the, uh, the mark of our success. There's, uh, as, uh, as you know, lots of rankings and, um, uh, and I've been very, very fortunate to be in different rankings and things, but one of the, one of the ones I'm most proud of is the Globe and Mail that rank not lawyers, but law firms. And mm. for us to be included among the best health law firms was, uh, was something, uh, that I'm very proud of. Um, so yes, we absolutely specialized and we, We've uh, absolutely spent a lot of time thinking about uh, who we are and what we do and and how we can be the best at doing it. Um, but there actually are lots of different uh, firms that work in this space. And, um, you know, in terms of advice, uh, in terms of um, um, sort of the advice about, uh, about success as a firm, I don't know if this is advice, but it was a realization. Early on, uh, Elise and I looked at where our clients were coming from. And, um, and we thought, we realized that every kind of lawyer, every Every kind of professional was good for a file every year or two, um, but the only consistent source of files were other lawyers practicing health and regulatory law. So that made us realize we don't have competitors. We just have colleagues who refer files to us. And that realization made practicing so much more enjoyable because I never view anyone as a competitor. I only view them as potential, you know, colleagues, obviously, and uh, and hopeful referral sources. So that certainly made for uh, a, a much happier existence. Um, and I think that, um, you know, recognizing that and uh, nurturing those relationships was actually uh, was uh, was part of success. Um, but one of the, one of the, uh, reasons for success. So a question I ask uh, a lot of lawyers and, uh, I think you'd be, um, well positioned to answer this is 
how do you define excellence, whether it's in practice or in a case or just in a general sense of what your firm stands for? What is excellence to you? So excellence means always putting your clients first. And, um, and that means that uh, if the, the recommendation for a client is the best thing for them and maybe not the best thing for you, you don't hesitate for a second to recommend what's best. So for example, if a client is um, proposing to appeal a decision, um, then, uh, then you owe it to the client to say, you know, you might win on this appeal, but what the, what will happen next is the decision will be back at this, uh, at this committee and the decision might not even be as good as it is now. Um, so, you know, so the recommendation has to be, uh, to obviously clients can make informed decisions if you give them all the information. So putting clients first is, uh, is a key to excellence, doing your best every day, never a half measure, never phoning it in. Even if you have a, a limited budget, for a particular case, but you need to spend more time in order to do the right job, you do the right job. That's a no-brainer. Um, and continuously learning and staying current is uh, is really central to, uh, to success. I thought you were going to talk about big snowboarding tricks, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do any tricks. I'm not a great snowboarder, but I certainly enjoy it. I'm a better skier. What do you do to get away from it all? So, um, I, I, um, you know, getting away from it all is very, very challenging. Um, I, uh, I do have lots more going on other than, uh, just my practice. Um, I, uh, spend lots of time with my family. Um, we, uh, we spend lots of time in my cottage. I ski and I snowboard and in the, in the spring and summer I cycle and I, and I, uh, hike. Um, so, so lots of things like that. Um, I'm very into eating and cooking and, uh, uh, traveling. We, uh, we do a family road trip every year. We spend, uh, spend lots of time, uh, in different places. So, uh, but, but even that with all those things, getting away from it all is really hard. I've done that twice. Um, twice I've gone on a big trip and, uh, and I've really disconnected and, um, it took an incredible amount of work to do it, but it was definitely worthwhile. Um, I'll tell you just, uh, um, to how I got there. Um, it, this is, uh, now about four or five years ago, I was on a, a trip with my kids on a March break trip. Um, and I had lots going on. And as soon as I got to the airport, uh, I was doing work at the airport and then, um, and then I got on the plane and I, uh, went to connect to Wi-Fi. nothing confidential by the way, because, uh, the plane is not a good place for doing <laughs> confidential work, but I had other work to do. And I went to connect to the Wi-Fi, um, and the Wi-Fi was not available. And I had a six hour flight to British Columbia, um, without Wi-Fi. And that meant I couldn't work. And uh, I thought to myself, this is really nice. And then in my, uh, I, that, uh, that old uh, Club Med commercial popped into my head. Can you imagine a week? Because uh, <laughs> that year I was planning to go with my wife to Italy. And I thought, how great would it be if I could really just completely disconnect? I'm now at a place where, um, where I have uh, very, very competent colleagues um, who can fill in for me. And, um, and I decided that I would try. So what I did is I, I uh, communicated with all of my clients a, a month or so out to tell them that for this uh, 10 day stretch, I was going to be, uh, unavailable, not just away and, you know, delayed in getting back to them, but completely unavailable. Um, I had, um, uh, every file was, uh, uh, I briefed a colleague about every file. Uh, my office manager went through my email every day to identify whether anything was urgent and, uh, and could deal with it. And I also had one safety valve because, um, I, uh, I had a proceeding, um, uh, in, um, when I returned and, um, the, although we did our best, the factum was just not good enough. 
enough um, when I left. So I had uh, worked with a colleague on that and we arranged one half day. I was going to take a vacation from my vacation and do work. So during that half day, I was going to connect and um, and do the work and deal with anything else at that time. And, uh, and it went really, really well. And it was an incredible break. So then this past summer, uh, my wife and I were on a cruise and I did the same thing. And um, by the way, I also disconnected from all of my social media. I saw that. Um, because, uh, because, you know, my, uh, my law Twitter is, uh, is very much work related. The podcasts I listen to, uh, are, uh, are very much law related. So I really had to disconnect from everything, but it was really worth it. Yeah. I, I, you probably noticed I, I disconnected the personal account as well. And, um, I, I feel I'm happier. I, I do. I, I like to keep up to date, but I can still keep up to date without engaging. And it's a nice feeling. Yeah. As you're going through your description of um, getting away, I, I immediately in my mind, that movie, What About Bob came to mind, mm. where you have, you have doctors trying to find you <laughs> and flying down to <laughs> wherever Club Med and seeing you on a sailboat and pulling up. And I guess it didn't get quite that far. But how how, um, how important do you think that is? Does it make you a better lawyer, do you think? I think it does. I think that um, that to be rested and um, you know to disconnect from time to time is really important. Uh, you need to take breaks because so much of what we do um, requires requires not only to be on, um, but um, but requires connection with people, requires empathy, uh, requires creativity. And, uh, and when you're really low on resources, you're not going to be effective doing that. So that's why it's really important, um, you know, to spend time doing things other than practicing and, uh, you know, every once in a while to really take a break, to really disconnect. I mean, listen, I've only done that twice in my, uh, now almost 25 years of, uh, of practice. So it's, uh, it's not something I do usually, but I do like to take a, an evening off or, uh, or a half day off. Um, but I don't have sort of a hard line around boundaries. I think that uh, a lot of people um, advocate that and say, you know, never look at your email uh, after 6 p.m. Uh, or on a weekend or something along those lines. I mean, we have clients who are going through really difficult situations. Um, and not only the the uh, the individuals, you know, we have uh, regulator clients who um, who have, uh, have difficult uh, decisions that they have to make and they require support. And they're, if they're stressed about something, something, the best thing you can do is answer and respond to their email, not necessarily giving substantive advice, but just saying, Hey, I'm with you. I know you're up thinking about this. I am too. Here's what we're going to do about it. And just let them know that you're with them. Um, I think the, the benefits of that are, uh, are incredible and far outweigh the, um, the cost of, uh, you know, the, the, the concept of never being disconnected. I mean, there's a lot of benefits to staying connected. You, it's, it's, it's a challenge, uh, Jacob, when you talk about uh, getting away, like, um, one of the challenges is being fully engaged. So it's, uh, it's hard. People talk about work-life balance all the time. I don't think there's a balance. I think there's a blend. And, uh, and I, you know, I try to be fully engaged in what I'm doing. So when I'm, you know, doing work, trying not to think about all the other things. And when I'm, uh, with my family, um, trying not to think about work, but, uh, but it's real challenge. Uh, and that's why, especially when my kids were young, I had a real hard time doing that. And I was much better at it when I was engaged in an activity. So for example, the kind of downtime, just hanging out with the family, pretty hard not to think about 
about uh, uh, all the things that you uh, that you have to deal with. Um, but if you're skiing or you're um, or you're uh, at the hockey rink, um, especially if you're coaching, you're not thinking about work, so you can be fully engaged um, in in that capacity. Well, I know, you know, just communicating with you and certainly my emails and phone calls are ones that you could easily brush off and you never do. So um, I I think you're really onto something there of the importance of one email. And I, I don't think you're saying respond to emails at all times, but one of the biggest complaints for lawyers seems to be lack of communication with the clients. And I suspect what you see in the regulatory side in health law, it's similar with doctors. It's a matter of communication for a lot of it. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Communication um, underlies many of the complaints for all different professionals. Um, and um, and uh, ensuring that someone feels heard and validated is, uh, is an incredible um, uh, risk, uh, risk management tool. Well, Lonnie, I hope you feel heard and certainly um, you validated a lot of people's opinions of getting into health law. So I really appreciate you uh, helping us spark up of counsel again. And uh, I couldn't have thought of a better guest to get this going. Thank you so much. It's a real honor to uh, to be a guest on this show. It's uh, and such a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you guys very, very much.